Welcome to Honest Money, your best guide to financial freedom. I'm Warren Ingram, the author of a few best-selling books, and I'm also an award-winning financial planner, and I've helped thousands of people on their journey to financial freedom. I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I am here to share my experience and the best ideas that I've learned, and I hope these ideas help you on your journey to financial freedom. This episode is proudly brought to you by Outvest, the online investment platform powered by Outsurance. Visit outvest.co.za today to design your own investment plan and start working towards financial freedom. Welcome to another special episode of Honest Money. We're we're talking about global investing, and uh, unfortunately for me, I'm I'm in the hot seat today. So uh, I'm I'm going to be answering the questions, and and we're I'm very happy that we're joined by Grant Locke, head of Outvest. Grant, thanks so much for joining. Uh, th- this is not the first time we've done this, but uh, but but I just want to remind you, please go easy on the questions, and uh, and uh, l- let's just uh, g- get into it for our listeners about global investing. Thanks so much for joining. Oh, Warren, it's a pleasure to be here, and I think. Um, I don't think you can actually say go easy in the questions because you wrote the book or a book on global investing made easy. So I think I'm using that book as my reference point. So I think this should be quite interesting. So I think today, in, in the, one of the things I actually wanted to cover about global investing is getting the proportion of global allocations right. You see, it's one thing to go out there and think, oh, well, you know what, I just want to invest my money globally and I want to get all these great ideas. But I think there's a lot more that a financial planner thinks about when they talk about global investing. So I think that one of the first things to, to start with is the why, or what are you trying to achieve? What is your circumstances when you're investing globally? And that determines what proportion of your money you should actually send offshore. So if you're retired, for example, or if you have want to leave the money to your grandkids, that all has an impact on the amount of money you want to send overseas. So let's hear a bit more about you, what you, some of those scenarios and what you think and where the money should go. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. You know, a lot of the time when we want to send money overseas, we, it's a bit like saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to drive from, from Joburg to Cape Town, uh, but then you don't have a map, you don't have a GPS. And so you know, wh- where are you going and what r- road are you choosing and why? You know, it's, so I think it's important to have that, those clear kind of financial roadmaps in, in a decision like this. And, and so you're absolutely right. Your stage of life is an is a important one. Uh, and I think also the, the amount of investments that you have and, and or the amount of capital that you have is a critical mm. thing for me. So, for example, if you are, uh, you know, someone that's building up money and you, you're pretty sure that, or even if you've got, you know, you're, you're already retired, if you know that there's a good chance you're going to use most of your money in your lifetime, then I think ideally you should try and have about 25% of your assets invested overseas. You know, that's a good optimal offshore allocation because you are going to spend in rands. You are going to spend most of your money in rands, mm. uh, most of your time in rands. And therefore it makes sense that, uh, that, that you take out some of the currency risk of investing. And secondly, that you earn the interest and, and, and those kinds of things. So, so I think, uh, you know, if you've got just enough money, then 25% is a, is a good number. If you don't have enough money, you're in the same brackets, you know, if you're building up yeah. there. The, the second category would be those uh, those people who say there's a chance that I will leave behind some money to the next generation, to my children, as an example. And if you're going to leave behind some money to your children, then I think your your time frame for your money starts to change. In other mm. words, you're not just worried about what happens to your investments for for the rest of your lifetime. You're saying there is a good chance that I need to worry about my the the, the money into my children's lifetime as well. So you're looking at 25 to 75 years, for example, as a time frame. 
And when you've got such a long time frame, you need to know that the range of things that could happen are so wide that you need to make sure that you've spread your assets as far and as wide as possible. So you need to increase your overseas allocation. And my view is, if you've got money going to the next generation, it's probably about half of your assets should go overseas. The last category would be those uh, few families that say, we, we're pretty sure that, that we've got enough money to go to our children's children. And that could, for example, be even if your own children are only you know, in, under 10 years old, mm. if you know there's a good chance you're going to leave behind a lot of money. That's not my situation, but and carry on. I'd like to still like to hear about it. Yeah, well, you never know. Let's see how we go. Uh, um, so, so if you're in a situation like that, then, you, then I would say you're increasing your overseas allocation to around 75% of your assets. And the reason is that there is a good chance that some or all of your uh, children or your children's children won't all be in South Africa. That means they're going to spend money in dollars or pounds or euros or yen or whatever it is. And, and so you need to make sure that you're covering future expenses and future events that you just cannot predict uh, at mm. the moment. So, so then uh, people in that category, I always try and give them the example of if you were sitting on the moon and you were the man on the moon and you looked at the world and you said, I'm going to invest money, money in the world you're not going to allocate all of that money to one country. Even mm. if it was America or South Africa or the UK, you would spread it as far and as wide as possible. So, so I think that that's, to me, the primary criteria as to how you choose how much to send overseas. I, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I mean, I think that, that's absolutely sound. I think there's another element to it as well. And, and one of the other questions is, okay, cool, I'm sending money overseas. I understand the proportion I want to send overseas. But I guess one of the questions is, what currency do I pick? And you just started off now by saying, well, you know, don't just pick one currency. But I think that the home or the way, as, as you said in, in an earlier episode, the home of your money, where it's ordinarily sitting and, and what, what currency you place it in has an impact on it. Now, how do you decide what currency the offshore investment should stay in and why? So I think I think it's a great question. So maybe just to clarify, I, I, I wouldn't put all my money in one country. That, yeah. that, that worries me. Okay, uh, but, but I'm I'm quite happy to have it all in one currency. And and but just to explain what I mean by that. Mm, so please. if I buy a global index, you know, and, and that's something I've spoken about, I, I don't know, hundreds of times on 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 this show and and and, and elsewhere. Uh, I, I like the idea of a global index. And and for me, if I'm going to do that, I'm going I'm going to buy it in dollars. So, so that doesn't mean that my whole investment, my whole global index will all be in dollars in America because that global index is going to own probably Toyota. You know, it's going to own some uh, Swiss pharmaceutical companies. I'm sure it's going to own some insurance companies in the UK, et cetera. So that means I've got exposure to a lot of different countries and a lot of different currencies and a lot of different companies. Uh, but eventually all of those come back and they're then priced in dollars. Mm. So, so the reason why I'm okay with that is because if the dollar collapses, the likelihood is that that investment will actually do quite well because a falling dollar means that the rest of the, the, the stuff that's not priced in dollars is actually going to become more valuable. So, so I'm okay with that. And secondly, my primary reason for sending money out of one country and buying another country, uh, another currency is diversification. So I'm more worried, for example, if I'm in South Africa, I'm worried about spreading my risks out of rands. Mm. So once I've done that, I'm not too worried about exactly what the dollar is going to do against the pound or the euro or the yen or whatever it is, because I know I've got a global portfolio and I own all of those currencies in one form or another already. So, so then, then it's almost a, a mechanism and a pricing and a convenience issue and, and not so much me being a world expert on currencies and countries. 
And I think the other thing is <clears throat> what's available for that where you, for the domicile or the home of your money, there's probably only a certain range of currencies that you can base your investment is, which will obviously help with your decision. I think if we, if we now have an understanding of what proportion of my wealth to send overseas and an understanding of exactly what, what, what the home should be, I think the next thing you need to understand is the time horizon, which then has an impact on exactly what I'm investing in. And bear in mind, we're not even going to the fun stuff yet, which is the index, active versus passive, Bitcoin, cryptos, farmland in some other country or art, for example. We're actually still talking about the very high level understanding of what type of asset class my money should be domiciled in. You know, when I was reading your book, it made a lot of sense around starting with the plan and then moving on to the time horizon, which will determine the asset class. So I'd like to hear... Firstly, how you determine it in terms of your time horizon, but then what asset classes will come out of that and why? So, so time horizons are an absolutely critical factor in deciding uh, how much you invest in riskier assets. Mm. So, for example, if you're going to invest money for, for the next one, two, three years, you, you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to send the money uh, to an investment, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to need to access that money, some or all of it, in the next one, you know, one month or two to three years, then you need to know that you really can't afford to take risk with that money. You can't afford to invest in farmland, as you say, or uh, or, or property uh, in general or in shares, because those are growth assets, which is great when they're going up, but growth assets come with a price, and the price is that they can also go down as well. And so if you know you're going to need your money, let's say you, you're planning to put down a deposit on a house uh, and you buy the house and suddenly it's time to get the money to pay the deposit and you've lost a third of the money because you were in shares and they've gone down, that's an awful scenario. So, so the time horizon for when you're going to access the money is key in deciding how much risk you can take. And once you know how much risk you can take, it's actually 100% linked to the assets that you choose. So, so I think if you say... I'm happy to send my money to an investment for five years or longer. I, I actually think almost five to seven years or longer. Mm. Then you can start to have a huge bias to shares as an asset class. And, and I think also th then we're starting to get into the global space because I'm really worried to send my money out, uh, you, know, you know, to send it overseas to be a global investor if I know I'm going to bring the money back and need it in three years' time. It doesn't make sense to me to take the currency risk okay. as well. So, and, but also the costs. I mean, there's the cost in getting the money out, the cost, the repatriation cost of getting the money in, the selling, the, the bid offer spread on your investments. There's a whole lot of cost in, involved in not just, you know, um, taking it out of the investments, but also moving, repatriating the money back to the country, your home country. Yeah. Actually, brilliant point. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a key thing that a lot of us would lose sight of. You know, mm. we, we just think you know, things go up, investments go up, so we don't have to worry about the costs. And actually, costs in a low return, low interest rate environment could absolutely wipe out any growth absolutely, you've, you've yeah. had. So I think it's a fair point. I think the other thing is, is, is sort of, I mean, we, we talk about risk a lot. And I think you make the point about risk because people's understanding of risk is my money could go down, which is exactly you know, the, the behavioral understanding of it. But I think one of the reasons why your time horizon is so critical is because, and, you know, as you, as you sort of push it into, as you increase your time horizon, you increase more of your allocation to listed equities is actually because of inflation. I'd like to hear a bit of your thoughts about why, why inflation is such a risk. I feel, um, you know, I, I think of inflation in the same way I, th I think of a slow poison. Mm. Uh, it, it's, th there's no dramatic event that says to you, hey, Grant, your, your cost of living uh, it has suddenly, you know, risen and the buying power of your money has, has, has gone. Mm. Uh, there isn't a headline, unfortunately, that we get in the, you know, in the media that says, 
watch out your cost of living you know for you as a person has now changed and and pay pay attention so what happens is it just gradually eats away at the ability for our money to buy what it used to buy mm. and, and that's a that's inflation and 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 that's the thing that probably keeps me awake at night when i'm when i'm planning investments for people is they they don't have they don't look at this they don't, it's not something they focus on mm. they're so worried about uh, stock markets rising or falling because the media shouting this at them it's, mm. it's something that they get bombarded with but if they can't let the the buying power of their investments grow at a rate that's at least growing uh, the same pace as the as the buying power of their money is being eroded they're going backwards mm. and it's and it's that slow poison is just awful and unfortunately by the time people realize it they can't they can't make it up anymore no that that's what happens in retirement you know you 10 15 years into retirement suddenly you wake up one morning in the month the income that gets paid out of your annuity is not enough to be able to afford the things that you need to to maintain your standard of living and that's really the risk and i think you know and i think your your metaphor of using it as a poison is probably i mean i've never heard it before and i think it's a phenomenal metaphor because that's exactly what it is it's a slow erosion of your your money but it also it impacts on what you do with yourself every single day yeah. so i think i mean the other point to make is that you know over the last 120 years that we've been looking at market data the only asset class that we know of that has reliably outperformed inflation with a decent margin has been asset equities yeah and so that's one of the reasons that's the major reason why as the time horizon increases that we are start to use more a greater allocation to listed equities in the portfolios so i think you know i think the one other thing that i i think you know it's not directly related to global investing but when i was reading your book i i came across this bengen rule we were talking about the plans and we were talking about an understanding of you know how much money you need have you got just enough money in retirement and i thought to myself this is a great way for me to do a back of the max spot calculation to understand do i just have enough money how much of my money can i send overseas so i just take us through the bengen rule please well um, i, I want to make it maybe a bit simpler because every time we give a name to something people uh, pe- people lose us so so just saying to people um if you want to know how much you can uh, you need to, uh, to retire what's your lotto number then take your expenses and and figure out how much are you going to spend in a year so so now what you've got to do is you've got to say these are my regular monthly expenses so whatever mm-hmm. that is times it by 12 but don't forget that you might buy a car every 5 years and so take uh, the 5 year amount divided by 5 to get to an annual amount that you're going to allocate to a car add a holiday amount add you know any other kind of irregular expenses that come up you know if you pay for kids education every year whatever the deal is put all those expenses together and then times it by 25 Mm. and that will tell you how much you you need to get to uh, re- retirement it's your financial freedom number let you know retirement sounds like such a boring thing okay, it's yeah, your yeah. your financial freedom number the, the the thing is when you do that for the first time uh, um you might think gee i'm i'm way off you know this whole thing's yeah, pointless never going to work yeah what you need to do is do it once a year because what happens now is when you realize that actually you know it, it, i need a 25 million and i've only got one next year if you've got two and you only need 25.2 million you're starting to close the gap mm. and that's actually what's important here is not what's the actual number you know and i'm never going to get there it's about saying let me keep closing that gap as i go and i think that you know getting back to global investing if you know what your number is you get an understanding of what proportion of your investments you should be sending offshore and i think that's very very important from getting an understanding of the proportion of your global allocation in your portfolio warren thank you very much this has been phenomenal i can't wait for the next episode and i'm grateful for your insights Th- thanks so much grant i enjoyed it 
This episode was proudly brought to you by Outvest. While everyone will tell you that time is your friend when it comes to investing, few will talk about the enemy. Investment fees. And that's because they can be higher than you think and not always entirely clear. In fact, you usually need to ask your provider for your effective annual cost, or EAC for short. With Outvest, however, fees are transparent and radically low, leaving more of your money to grow. And that can have a dramatic effect in the long term. Visit outvest.co.za today and give yourself a low fee advantage for retirement, fixed rate, tax-free and general investments. There's even a global investment solution coming soon. Outvest is an authorized FSP and is powered by Outsurance. All investments are exposed to risk, not guaranteed and dependent on the performance of the underlying assets. T's and C's apply.